Yeah, Vaughn? in an album episode four Toph how the hell are you I'm good I'm I was already in a fairly good mood and then um, most of you don't know this but we can actually see one another as we do this and uh, Dubs is wearing a sleeveless t-shirt and I just, I think you look really fabulous in your sleeveless shirt. You're the only human being in the universe that would associate anything with me in a sleeveless and uh, anything positive. It's functional. It's functional. And the reason why is it's blazing here in Southeast Michigan at the time of this recording, like 93 degrees and humid and gross. So I promise you it's not for aesthetics it's purely functional. No well, one that looks like me should ever be caught dead or alive in a sleeveless t-shirt. Well, listen, I mean, it's episode four. It's, it's your episode. And then, you know, let's, let's find out what you've got up your sleeveless. Hey, oh, up your sleeveless. Thank you. Good night. We're tweeting. We're on Twitter. We're tweeting away. Make sure to tell everybody our Twitter handle, T. What is it? Uh, On Twitter, we are the number two underscore twins underscore album. And available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Yes, we are now on Spotify. We we weren't sure last episode if we were going to be up there yet, but we know at this point of episode four that we are now on Spotify. So great news. And we want everyone to subscribe, leave your feedback, engage with us as much as possible. Tell us we're right. Tell us we're wrong. Tell us whatever you want to tell us. And we've actually, of recent, had a couple album suggestions. So certainly feel free to tweet us or uh, reach out to us through any of those methods and let us know if there's an album that either you want on our radar or you want us to consider for an episode. We take requests here at Two Twins in an Album. We take requests. Indeed. All right. Here's what's up my sleeveless. A question. Do you want to get rocked? How did I not see that coming? I don't know. Lack of foresight. Didn't even see it coming. But it's not, do you want to get rocked? It's, do you want to get rocked? Like it's, it's that, yeah, it's that Joe Elliott thing that he does there sexy his sex appeal you realize like how much guts it takes to start an album with like an acapella sort of half talk half sing like that's how confident Def Leppard was in the late winter of 1992 I mean listen this this band did not lack confidence are you fearful that every episode I lead is going to have somebody with Phil Collin in the name. Yeah, you, you are two for two on, on something Phil related. I don't know. I guess what's next? Uh, like Thin Lizzy? What other Phil's? What other famous Phil's? 
I think that might be the only three, but it does give us a chance to once again do Phil. What about Phil Manley from Trans Am? Could do Phil Manley. He's good. You could also talk about TV's Phil Connors. Yes, you could. Which is not a real person. It's not? No, that's that's a Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. Phil, Phil Connors. Yeah, that's right. Ned Ryerson. Well, we will be discussing another Phil here on the show as we look at a grief album that doesn't really sound <laughs> like a grief album. I suppose we all grieve in different ways, don't we, T? Yeah, you know, I've heard grief albums. You know, Pink Floyd's The Final Cut. Like every Nick Cave record. Um, oh, this, there's, a f- there's a few others that we'll touch on. This is not a grief album. Um, no. But, you know, sometimes you grieve by partying. I kind of feel like partying. I feel like partying right now. Well, we're going to look at this unique take on grief as only Def Leppard can. But I will tell you how I grieve, Toph. I grieve by us going round and round. (laughs) Toph, what's on the old platter that spins round and round and plays music? One of these is is actually just from yesterday. The, The band which is headed up by Matt Sharp of Weezer called The Rentals, which most probably know from the top smash single from the 90s, Friends of P. Uh, You know, if you're friends with P, then you're friends with me. Then you're friends with me. That whole lyrical, poetic genius. They released a new album via Bandcamp called Q36. And uh, it's a very nice listen. It's very different they're a cool band they've been you know they've been at it for a long time as you know sort of this side project very eclectic very you know if you if you go back through the catalog they've kind of made a lot of different sounds and um q36 a a nice very interesting new album from the rentals the second is um a band i quite love no pun intended angels and airwaves with their album Love, which I suppose is really Love Part 1 and Love Part 2. Doesn't take a lot to get me to listen to anything Angels and Airwaves, but the Love album, which kind of caught a little bit of a hard time from some Ava fans. I'm actually quite a big fan of both parts, and uh, so I've been spinning that. And then the last one is a is a hard rocker by a band called BM Links, and it's called Black Entertainment. This is one rockin' band that should have been huge. You listen to this album and you just wonder how, you know, these guys weren't a bigger deal. But uh, a couple of tracks, particularly the front half of the album, that are just blazing. So BM Links, Black Entertainment, check that one out. What is on your turntable, Nubs? This week I've been uh, listening to one of the two albums by a band called 254. So it's important phonetically. It's numeral two, colon, numeral five, numeral four. That's yeah. got to be prog rock. It's not prog rock, actually. Oh. It's, it's, I, I know. It seems like it would be, of course. It's two sisters from Ireland. It's a, it's a newer 
group that actually is already broken up. This album's from 2014. It's called The Other Eye. They're they're kind of a ethereal kind of sort of like that dream pop thing that was going on in the 90s. They're a lot like lush um female vocals, just really warm, cool stuff to listen to. Two albums and then and then they were done. So I've been listening to a little 254. Uh, Steve Hillage, who's best known for being in the band Gong, put out kind of back-to-back albums, two separate albums that combined to be one. The first one's called 4-2 Next. This is from 1982, kind of some early synth prog stuff. He's a, he's a real favorite in prog circles as a guitarist. And then one that I know is near and dear to your heart, which is Flowerhead. Oh, is it Kabloom with its album Kabloom? Yeah, sure. This is from 1992. Just happens to be from the same year of the album we'll be looking at tonight. And this is um, this is a band that was part of the grunge thing. But if you listen to the album, it really doesn't resemble that. Maybe with the exception of the really big production, but kind of spaced out rock music, a little hippie-ish, but also a little bit heavy. And uh, the opening track, Acid Rain, is a real standout track. And I, I found a really rare pressing of it on green vinyl from one of my favorite online sellers. And been getting into that. So that's what's round and round. That CD, I think it was one of those that I saw in the used section during our daily trip to uh, Repeat the Beat, the old record shop in our hometown. and. I think it was one of those. I just thought the band name was cool and the cover was cool. So I just like spent the 99 cents on it and, but I haven't listened to it in forever. Is it, is it, it's worth giving another lap. Oh yeah. It's excellent. It's, it's kind of blaring guitars, but a lot of slower tempo stuff, uh, loud, but powerful. Yeah. You would definitely still dig it. Perhaps a perfect segue to tonight's album. It's a very interesting album because of, what came before it, obviously the smash hit of hysteria, the things that happened in between hysteria and adrenalize. And then when you look at sort of what happened to the band after adrenalize, it really closes the chapter on 1980s Def Leppard and all that went with it. Even though the album was released in the early nineties, it really still feels and acts like in an album that came out in this great band's heyday. And so it'll be an interesting one to dig into and it'll be an interesting conversation to see where this fits as an album. I would say three of the four that we've picked thus far, these have all been, you know, be here now in utero and now adrenalize coincidentally, I don't think we necessarily did this on purpose, have all been follow-ups to Smash Records and very anticipated. We we certainly, I can attest, we didn't get together and decide that that was going to be a theme of the early episodes here on the old podcast here. Um, but it certainly has been uh, part of uh, on almost every album we've looked at thus far on the show. Well, think about with this being episode four, this is the fourth of these four themes, drama in utero, divorce, face value, indulgence, 
be here now. And then adrenalize death. Which again is the last thing you'd think of when you catch the vibe of this album. <laughs> Let's catch the vibe and get into those nerdy deets dunder cheap. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? Thank you, Brian. Adrenalize was released on March 31st, 1992. And uh, the, the band went from five to four between Hysteria and Adrenalize. And I mean that in terms of number of band members. Joe Elliott on lead vocals, Phil Collin on lead and rhythm guitars, Rick Savage on bass, and Rick Allen on drums. All of them sang. Omitted from that is rhythm guitarist Steve Clark, who died during the writing of Adrenalize. Steve Clark was a founding member of Def Leppard, a really, really important member of the band, a beloved member of the band. And he died very tragically before this album came to fruition. I think if you asked even most Def Leppard fans or casual fans who produced this album, my, my prediction would be 90% of those responders would say one name and one name only. What name is that? Robert John Lang, I believe. That's right. And, and Mutt Lang did not produce Adrenalize. Which I didn't really even admittedly understand until, uh, what did you tell me, like yesterday? Yeah. <laughs> I completely thought it was a muttling album. And how could you not, by the way it sounds and the way it came together? But it is important to know that Mutt Lang co-wrote nine of the ten songs on the album. What's interesting about that is the co-writing, by all accounts, was all done over the phone in kind of a frantic period for the band. They had these songs and they were working with Mutt Lang over the phone to add some writing elements. Mutt Lang, for reasons that are pretty well documented, really wanted to sever ties with Def Leppard. Def Leppard is not an easy band to work with. From a technical perspective and a process perspective, there's a reason they take so long to make albums. They're real perfectionists. And while they produced the unbelievably successful hysteria together, Mutt Lang was trying to break away from the band and go do other things. And one of the things he wanted to go do was Shania Twain, I think. Is that correct? This is correct. He wanted to do Shania Twain, right? And not only did he do Shania Twain, but he did her album that... Career. <laughs> yeah. What that album was... I think at a time that album was like the, the top selling album in the history of country music in the U.S. or something like it had some amazing statistic. It's huge. I mean, the, the work he did with her was, was a big deal for a crossover, you know, country pop. One of the, one of the records he did with her a little bit later, literally they, they had two releases. They released a country version and a pop version and both sold tremendously well. Yeah. So he, his voice is part of the album. His influence is part of the album, but he did not produce Adrenalize. Adrenalize was produced by Mike Shipley, who was a longtime engineer for Mutt Lang and clearly learned some of the tricks of the trade along the way. Mike Shipley's a very successful producer and um, we'll dive into some of the things that, that he did to sort of mirror what Mutt Lang was bringing um, to the Def Leppard sound. 
he certainly had plenty to learn from. I mean, if you look at, you know, Mutt Lang's resume, it's incredible when you figure ACDC, uh, Brian Adams, the aforementioned Shania Twain, who then became his wife. And, you know, when it came to production, performance, and composition, I mean, this guy clearly could write songs. He, like you said, he wrote almost every song on the Adrenalized record. You know, I mean, this this guy is pretty incredible. Now, of recent, it seems like he's, you know, gone into a little bit more of a life of seclusion. And if there's a, you know, blockbuster band that still sells records, you know, he's going to work with them. I mean, recent, I think his last three albums have been with Nickelback, Maroon 5, and Muse. So clearly, you know, he's decided to, you know, work with bands that, are pretty high profile and bands that still sell albums in order for it to be worth his while. One of the things I would note about uh, Mutt Lang is he, he also wrote the song uh, all for love by uh, Brian Adams, Rod Stewart and sting. Um, which is just a glorious track from the uh, early nineties. And he wrote it. Who could forget all for love. That was to Robin hood. Wasn't it? That was everything I do. I do for you. I think, which oh, really? I, he probably he probably wrote that too. I, I know he produced that song. I I, I think all for, you'll have to look this up. I think all for love was, I think it was part of a movie soundtrack. I can't remember. I think you're right about everything I do. I was thinking we could sing all for love real quick. <laughs> I think there's been a few times where you and I have done a. All right. Well, I'll hold the note. I'll hold the note. You do the other part. Okay. Ready one. Two, three, and we make it all for love. All for love. <laughs> the one you know be the one you are. The one you need. One more time. Let's make it all for love. All for love. When it's someone that you know. Who thought on episode four you'd get a performance, ladies and gentlemen? That was amazing. Anyway, Mutt Lang wrote that song. I will tell you, I I messed up the words um, severely during that performance. You and I were not on the same page, but it was still awesome. You can chalk it up to lack of rehearsal. There you go. One of the things that, you know, I love about this band is they never apologized for wanting to be commercial, wanting to be accepted, wanting to please their fans. And I think what made them work was they had this blend of unapologetic commercialism, which they did not mind. In addition to a lot of talent and real embrace of being rock and roll stars that Def Leppard loved and still love to this day. Yeah, they still do. Still love being rock stars. And, you know, those guys are, they're hitting the gym. They look great. They get up there on stage and they crush it. There may be a couple songs that they're taking a half step or a full step down just for vocal capability, but they still get up there and they still do it. And I think when you combine love of being a rock star with, appreciation and an unapologetic approach to making hits and playing your hits and being beloved and being accepted. That's something that can really keep you relevant. And 
all those other bands with the exception of a few from the eighties, if you look at, you know, kind of those that are more in the hair metal genre and all those bands from the mid to late eighties fizzled out, either burnt themselves out or decided to go in a direction that fans weren't looking for. And Def Leppard has just continually found a way to be relevant. And I think a lot of it comes from their desire to please their fans. And you still see it to this day when they go on those summer tours. So much of it has to do with where they came from. You know, these are working class guys from working class families in Sheffield, England, uh, who grew up with the love of new wave of British heavy metal bands in the late seventies. My favorite Def Leppard story is Joe Elliott, like so many of us. I mean, which one, which one of us did not do this? He dreamed up of the band name while he was in grade school. <laughs> and he used to sit in school in class and draw up posters that said Def Leppard that had the name. Now he spelled it the proper way. He didn't spell it D-E-F at the time. But he was doing that at a really young age. I mean, he had this vision and I think that's continued. By all accounts, Joe Elliott is sort of the guy that makes the whole thing happen. And he's surrounded by incredibly talented people. Particularly when you look at Phil Collin and Lee Guitar, who I think is one of the most underrated guitarists in rock history. And we'll talk more about that. But they really came from a pretty pure place as a band and found success by staying unified and battling through a ton of adversity. You know, it was just a few years before Adrenalize, Rick Allen gets, gets in a car crash and loses an arm. For a drummer to lose an arm, I mean, it, it's, that would devastate some bands. And instead, they used technology and resilience and a hell of a lot of commercial success from the ensuing album to press on. This band has been through a lot. You know, they made a really awful made-for-TV movie, I think it was on VH1, about Def Leppard. Right. Um, and the drama didn't stop after Adrenalize by any means. Between Adrenalize and Slang, Phil Collin got divorced. Joe Elliott and Rick Allen both got arrested for domestic abuse and assault, respectively. And Rick Savage had to beat Bell's Palsy. These are all things that affected all the band members. And they added a new member, Vivian Campbell, who kind of came in as this breath of fresh air for the Adrenalize tour. This album is a grief album. And most of the time you think grief albums, you think Neil Young, Tonight's the Night. You think Temple of the Dog. Uh, you think of things like Nick Cave's Skeleton Tree, which he made that album after his son had a really tragic death. I mean, these are the albums you associate with grief albums. And like you said earlier, you put on Adrenalize. It's not the first thing you think of, but this is a band that was dealing with the loss of a really important member of their family. And they're just a few years out from an accident that damn near killed their drummer and, and caused a very life-altering injury. Yet the album sounds as energetic and, and fun and inspired as anything they ever did. You hit the nail on the head, Resilient. This is probably the most resilient band in music history. If you look at, you know, what they've been through and what they've, you know, overcome over the years. And it, it's, a, it's a band and it's a, it's a group that you know, kind of has its own culture 
because it just seems like everybody in that band has always been on the same page with what to do and how to go forward. And one thing they all have in common, look good, (laughs) get up there, be rock stars, play the part and be passionate about giving fans what they want. That's always been Def Leppard's MO. The album is dedicated officially to Steve Clark in the liner notes. They do a pretty sizable tribute, a very honest and pretty moving portrayal of, of what he meant to the Def Leppard family. So officially dedicated to uh, their lost rhythm guitarist, Steve Clark. Before we get rocked, let's learn about each other's wondrous stories. what is your Def Leppard story? Well, it's pretty interesting. I, you know, we both kind of had our first rock bands that we were really into right around the time of Hysteria and Bon Jovi, Slippery and Wet. And I was kind of the Bon Jovi guy and you were kind of the Def Leppard guy. You know, that was kind of how we, how we divvied it up. But Obviously going to see them, as you mentioned earlier, very memorable. One of the first arena rock and roll concerts that we went to. And one of my vivid Def Leppard memories was, I remember MTV did like the top 100 videos of all time. And it was a big deal. You tuned in, you, you know... You had no idea what it was going to be and all that. And I remember that Pour Some Sugar on Me was rated the number one video of all time. And I remember as like a 11 year old or whatever, we were like kind of being like mad. I don't, I don't, I don't know what I thought should have won. Maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe Thriller or something. I, I'm not sure what I, which one I was pulling for at the time, but I remember thinking, okay, it's a cool video, but it's them just playing on stage in the round, you know, with those black and white clip interludes, like, well, you know, that's not that cool of a video, but you know, it just showed the incredible popularity of the band, certainly during hysteria and coming out of it, the concert and uh, remembering that they were kind of your band growing up and you and I had kind of a Def Leppard Bon Jovi, uh, rivalry at the time uh, is kind of what I remember the most. I do remember how pissed you were at that because I was blissful. And, and looking back, it was ridiculous. I'm sure that the Def Leppard marketing machine donated to MTV's foundation or something to, to get that status. I mean, the, it was very strange that it was number one at that time. But I remember just being completely like off the floor about it. I was like bitching to, to our mom about it. I think I was like, the video is not even that good. You know I mean? <laughs> it was, it was uh, I was, I was not happy about that one. Yeah. Well, Def Leppard was certainly my band. I think all, you know, every young teenager, actually we weren't even really teenagers yet, but during those young ages, if you're passionate about music, you, you have a band that you identify with and is your band. Def Leppard was, was absolutely my band. Yep. And it started with the Hysteria cassette. Uh, when we were, I want to say we were maybe five or six years old, but we did a, one of our early like long plane trips. We did a trip to California with our mom and she let us pick out two or three cassettes and we got a Walkman, probably just to keep us 
shut up on the plane. And the cassettes I got was Genesis Invisible Touch and Def Leppard Hysteria. And the thing about I remember most about that cassette is I had to buy it three times because the lettering wore off of the cassette. I listened to it that much. You know, the, the clear cassettes had that white lettering on it. And the lettering completely rubbed off over time because I listened. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Totally. I was just obsessed with hysteria. I just thought it was the most captivating sounding rock album and listened to it so much. And then sort of went backwards. I got really into high and dry, which is actually my favorite Def Leppard album. Terrific album for those who have never heard it. It's, sort of Def Leppard at its most raw kind of rock and roll. So when Adrenalize came out, it was very anticipated for me. It was a huge deal. Went to the record store, you know, the day of and bought it on CD and cassette. And then, yeah, the seeing them live in November of 92 was, it was a night I'll never forget. There's so many things I've forgotten since 1992, but I remember when they came out and opened the show and it was a huge moment just to see kind of how magnificent and how powerful a rock concert could be. And then saw him again several times after that later on this tour and many times since and still a big fan. I'm, I'm disappointed that the band has never been able to capture really, I would say since Adrenalize has never been able to capture uh, anything grand in the studio but it's still a, a touring band that is very worth seeing. You nailed it earlier. They, they still sound excellent. They look like a million dollars up there. That's probably how much they've all spent to look that way. They still play great live shows and it's still a party every time you see them. So Hysteria was such a, it was such a big album that it propped up Pyromania, which came before it. And it set a stage for Adrenalize, which came after it. The truly landmark albums in rock history tend to do that. They prop up what came before and they, they build incredible anticipation, every as we've talked about on some other shows, for what came next. With that, hey, Tof, do you want to get rocked? All right, I think it's time to drop that needle. You got to be pretty darn confident as a band in 1992 to start an album with a. Do we want to get right? Let's Get Rocked, sort of a quintessential album opener, certainly a, a show opener that worked pretty well and was used pretty frequently. Can't hear that ever without thinking about the concert. It's a very melodic song. I think that like a lot of this album, and we'll talk about this certainly in the third track, lyrically, it, it's not going to win any uh, gold medals for depth, but it's... It, it's a very good song musically. It's got that driving backbeat. By this time, Rick Allen appears to have really learned 
that electronic drum kit. It seems like he was much more fluent with it than he was on Hysteria. And he's setting a, a very poppy, danceable, big, big backbeat to the song. But it's got some nice elements that surround the chorus. So lyrically, if it's a bit shallow, hey, welcome to Def Leppard in, in the late 80s and early 90s. But certainly uh, an opener that grabs your attention and, and live was a real staple. They, they played this song live almost every tour since this album came out. And you can see why. Joe Elliott himself has said, let's get rocked. In addition to a couple other songs on this, the lyrics really was a form of escapism. And there are a couple songs that, that lyrically address Steve Clark and address the grieving nature that, that does appear on this album. It's a little hidden, but if you dig into it, you can, you can see it. But certainly part of the idea was to put a couple or even a few tracks on this album that really set a tone for have a good time, do what we do. And you're certainly not going to get a mopey, non-commercial effort from Def Leppard at this time. And nothing really could have set that tone much more than Let's Get Rocked as the opener. And that takes us into track two, which is Heaven Is. Pretty trademark rhythm riff there from Steve Clark, who was one of the co-writers on the songs. Of course, Phil Collin playing both the lead and rhythm parts on this album. And Heaven Is is the first chance to sort of hear that on display. Always interesting as any artist, but certainly as a musician, if you to take on somebody else's persona as a player. And Phil Collin regularly talked about that it was like playing with a ghost. You know, it was like having the ghost of Steve Clark in the studio with him. But I think Phil Collin uh, did a, a very admirable job of the rhythm parts. His lead playing was sort of well known by this part, but I think Heaven Is has a really nice rhythm guitar part uh, that sort of paces the song. And it's very clear that Steve Clark had some say in the composition of that part. Yeah, I think there were some parts from Armageddon, it, which was a huge song off of Hysteria that were taken from some of those demos on that song and incorporated into Heaven Is, which is a great track too. Yet another really good example, and gosh, there are so many with this band, of the, the usage of guitar layering. You know, and there are several sections within this song where that's evident. I mean, they're... Their layering is just so precise and so systematic and so thoughtful. Everything you can tell with this band was thought of from a composition standpoint with, with dueling guitars in mind. And so many examples on so many great songs of you know guitars doing open chords over power chords and riffing over palm mutes and they do a really, really amazing job. I mean, when I see this band live, I just love watching Vivian and Phil Collin and what the two of them are doing to complement each other. But it's very precise what they do uh, as far as guitar blending and the guitar layering. And they're able to recreate it very nicely live as well. Yeah, it becomes pretty clear that Mike Shipley had the same disciplined approach, maybe not quite as disciplined as Mutt Lang, who was notorious for 
you know, having 400 takes of a guitar part and then choosing the one that was most perfect or, or crafting a perfect part. So clearly there was still quite a bit of precision going on here in the studio. It's interesting that some Def Leppard fans might see Adrenalize as like the son of hysteria. If you look at each song, you can sort of connect each song back to the hysteria track list a little bit, you know, let's get rocked sort of that classic opener, a lot like women on hysteria and you nailed it. I think heaven is, is sort of that Armageddon it with mm-hmm. the rhythm part that again, that classic Steve Clark style. Similar tempo from Rick Allen too. Very, you know, really quick on Rick Allen as the, obviously the resident drummer of, of the podcast here. How difficult is it to do what he did? I mean, obviously, you know, I don't want to necessarily ask you to put yourself in a position where you only have one arm, but to not only kind of learn this new technique, obviously you've got to build the technology and build the the drum set to, to be capable of what you're trying to do. But as far as using your, you know, your foot pedals in a different way where you're actually playing downbeats and upbeats with your two legs instead of with your hands and your legs, which is more conventional. As far as looking back at the kind of drummer Rick Allen was before the accident, how difficult was what he did and and, and how difficult is it continually for him to keep doing it? What helps him a lot, number one, is he was a terrific drummer in the first place. Listen to On Through the Night and, and High and Dry and Pyromania, he had great feel, really good hands, creative in terms of parts. So he was very skilled. That helps a lot because he had a, a tremendous sense of rhythm and a very natural feel. But physically, you're learning a brand new language and mentally, you're just having to develop completely different impulses and instincts. And that's hard as a drummer because drummers, you know, we're, we're all based on feel. And once you play long enough, it's, it's instincts, you know, it's knowing what to do with each hand at a certain time and knowing what fits a song almost without thinking about it. He had to get back to being intentional about every move he made with both of his legs and his remaining arm. And so it, I'm sure it was tremendously challenging. The, the stories are when he was first working on the kit that it was so physically exhausting that he would like pass out, you know, after just playing for a few minutes. Hmm. That's what's amazing about Rick Allen. If you ever go see Def Leppard, even nowadays, I mean, just the physical exertion that he puts out to play, everything's moving, everything's happening. I think he's become actually kind of an overlooked drummer because of what he does just as a drummer, not, not looking at him as the one arm drummer as he was, you know, so branded for so many years. I think it's absolutely incredible that he learned how to do it as quickly as he did. You know, they started playing those hysteria shows you know, just a couple short years after the accident and he was right on it. And I think they did like five warm-up gigs at a couple of clubs in England. And then like his first concert after that was like one of those you know, open air festival monsters of rock deals. <laughs> so it was probably kind of baptism by fire. And I, and I think if I'm not mistaken, they started off with a backup drummer on stage to kind of, you know, ensure that all the space was being filled and that sort of thing. And I, I think that only lasted like 
a handful of shows before. And I think it was the other drummer himself who kind of said, well, I don't think you guys need me anymore. <laughs> he's, he's got this covered, you know, it's a, it's an extremely cool rock and roll story. It really is. It really is. And again, we talked about it, resiliency, you know, that one thing could have taken down a thousand other bands and this band found a way to not only press on, but to use it to their advantage. I mean, make no mistake, that electronic drum sound is a really significant part of the commercial success that came with Hysteria. Oh, huge. You know, and, and in no way, shape or form would anybody ever say, you know, that they benefited in some way from what happened. But that gave them an aspect to their sound that was so unique compared to other bands at that time that it really stood out. I mean, how many of our friends growing up referred to Def Leppard as like, oh, the band with the one-armed drummer. I mean, it, it did become a really trademark part of the band and their story. People kind of rooted for them. You know, they went from sort of this obscure band from England to a band that everybody kind of rooted for because of what happened to Rick Allen. And, and that goes a long way. Track three. Oh, I hate saying this title. Do I even have to say it? Oh, I'm dying to hear you say it. Oh, gosh. Come on. You got I get, this. I get those bad chills every time I say this title. Make love like a man. See, what are some of your most notable best song, worst lyrics that you can think of? <laughs> best song, worst lyrics. I've got a couple. I was actually hoping that you were really going to get into that, like, make love. <laughs> like, I mean, make love is such a, I mean, I can't, can't remember last time I ever said it. Maybe never. But uh, like we talked about last week uh, in the last episode with uh, Alan Alden's pillow talk, I mean, you could really now here's Def Leppard with make love like a man. We could have gone pillow talk on that one. You're right. I mean, it's a hor it's a horrendous song title. And I mean, the lyrics are absurd. I will say that the song is dumb rock. It's dumb riffy rock, but it's, it's good. Dumb rock. I mean, oh, this, yeah. Yeah. this song is a, big stadium rock song that again, this is not going to go down in the bowels of history for composition purposes, but it's a high charged riff and Rick Allen's doing his thing back there with the big Rick Allen beat. So musically I can totally roll with this song, but Holy smokes, the lyrics. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's and and Joe Elliott has himself has said they I don't think they perform it anymore really just because he would be cringing at his own lyrics. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's one that uh, musically is great. It is a rocker and if you kind of ignore the ridiculousness of it, um it it really is a, a good song that probably if it had better lyrics would have lived on a little bit more. Certainly the singer himself um, admits that. Here's my list of what I would consider best song, worst lyrics. You ready for this? I'm ready. 
Led Zeppelin Fool in the Rain. What's wrong with that one? Oh, those are atrocious lyrics. I'll have to read them again. You know, you and I aren't big lyric guys. I, when I hear a song like that, I'm so focused on the bottom drum beat and the melodies, and I, I hardly even pay attention. I'll have to look at that one again. Well, remember, it's best song. I mean, I, I look, I love Fool in the Rain in spite of the sort of ridiculously stupid lyrics. Steely Dan Asia. <laughs> What's that one about? Oh, I, up on the hill, blah, blah, blah. Chinese music on the da, da, da. I, <laughs> Steely Dan always had weird lyrics, though. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably right. Okay, last one. But this sort of represents a whole genre of songs. Lola by the Kinks, Ooh. which has always been one of my favorite songs. And I would, I would say most songs that are somebody's name like Amanda by Boston, the great song, horrible lyrics. Well, you're pretty much eliminating every song by Toto in that case. <laughs> well, let's see. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Toto did have a couple that worked. Pamela worked. Oh, Rosanna, Angela, Lorraine. I do love Rosanna. Okay, let, let's eliminate Toto from the conversation. <laughs> but, but how about Oh Sherry? I mean, by Steve Perry. I love Oh Sherry by Steve Perry. Great song. But, I mean, completely, completely mind-blowingly ridiculous lyrics. The, the, the song that kind of comes to mind for me is, it's actually Jump by Van Halen. I mean, if you really think, I mean, it's such a great tune but if you really think about well, i mean he's just tell, telling people to jump i don't know that's a good it's, one yeah that's a good I mean, that's a good call how about like all van halen lyrics until 5150 yeah until until hagar got in there exactly well th this song it was a single it did not become a huge hit Got some radio play. I do remember that from rock radio. Got quite a bit of MTV airplay. Yeah. Yeah. It did have a video that caught on, but, but I, I think the very stupid lyrics stopped it from becoming maybe what it could have been. I would also know that the B side of this song was two steps behind, which was from the, I believe last action hero soundtrack and a very good song that you kind of wonder why it didn't make adrenalize, but it was certainly part of these recording sessions. I, I honestly think the band was in their own mind was thinking they were making the next pour some sugar on me again, connecting adrenalize to hysteria. And it, it clearly wasn't in every way, but that's the only way I can rationalize kind of thinking this song is, is a good part of the album is I, I think they were that I think that was the intention of the band was trying to create pour some sugar on me strikes again. We get into the heart of the album and some of the most creative aspects of Adrenalize with Tonight. Tonight has a really 
atmospheric intro. The band was, was very adamant in the liner notes to say that Phil Collin played acoustic guitar on tonight and Rick Savage played acoustic guitar on tonight. And I, I'm, my guess is that Rick Savage wrote that main riff that starts a song because he plays it and it sounds like some other things that he had written for the band in the past. Rick Savage, the bass player. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely made a lot of contributions to the band from a composition standpoint. Really Rick Savage is always seemed like kind of the steady Eddie of the band, you know, both in his playing as well as in his personality. I, I could see him kind of being the, if you use the sports analogy, kind of the glue guy, you know, the guy that's out there, getting rebounds, getting assists, you know, making his teammates better, you know, keeping everybody together, keeping everybody on the same page. It, it seems like Rick Savage played a um, very important role in this band. And most importantly, incredibly influential in introducing the world to the Britney Spears microphone. That is not a Britney Spears microphone. That is a Rick Savage microphone. Thank you. That's right. That's, a, that's an amazing call. He was the first I ever saw to wear the headset mic. And he rocked it quite well. Killed it. What do you think of Tonight? This is one of those songs that I have been uh, really interested all week to see what your thoughts are about this song. I like it. You know, I think that um, that main guitar riff during the verses, uh, like you said, that Savage likely composed is very classic Def Leppard. You know, that's the kind of riff that you would have could have easily heard on Pyromania a little bit reminiscent of bringing on the heartbreak or some of those old school Def Leppard picking, you know, kind of riffs during verses. But I think it sets up very nicely, particularly when you put it in the context of it coming before the epic of what I would consider on Adrenalize, which Def Leppard was always pretty good at having kind of a longer piece on one of their albums that you could tell was written more for them than it was for the fans or for the radio. And I think tonight actually sets that next track up nicely. It's a good take. It's a very strong two track run. I think there's a lot of passion in this song. The performances are excellent. Great vocal by Joe Elliott and the whole crew. If this is the love bites of Adrenalize, I like tonight a lot better. This is a song that, I think could have had more play and more connection if it just got a little bit more attention at the time. It sets up a middle of the album that does distinguish Adrenalize from Hysteria. And for that reason, I think it's an important part of the record. Speaking of which, for musicians, this is the song for you, White Lightning. My favorite track on Hysteria, Far and Away, and this was true when I was eight years old, and it's true now that I'm uh, years old, <laughs> is Gods of War. I just think they achieved something so epic and incredible with Gods of War, and White Lightning is right there. It's, it's epic, it's long, it goes through different moods and different parts, 
and capitalizes on everything good about Def Leppard. By all accounts, this song is their tribute to Steve Clark. So again, a lot of emotion behind it. You can sense that in the performances. To me, it's the high point of the album and, and a high point of the band's career. Yeah, you're right. It really does feel like, and, and lyrically certainly is the moment where they, where they pay homage and they do that musically and lyrically in a way that I think really, really works. Phil Collin is just an outstanding guitar player and the way he really had to step up on this album and cover lead in rhythm parts. You know, you, you said earlier how he commented how difficult that was to play a lot of Steve Clark's parts and play over his demos and those type of things. But he's a guitarist that can really truly play lead and rhythm at very, very high levels. I think, I mean, he's an incredible soloist. He, he shreds, but I actually think he's one of the better rhythm guitar players in rock. Um, if you really had to kind of put him in one category or the other, I love his feel. I love the way he can create tones with the guitar, not just through effects, but by certain angles of finger picking, certain palm muting methods. He He's really a guy that can play something basic and really make it sing and really give it that tone. You know, you were talking about with Phil Collins, the way he drums, you create tone with skill and with a certain playing style. And that really, I think, sums up Phil Collins' guitar player. He's fantastic. Are you saying there's a a quality of tone comparison between Phil Collins and Phil Collin? Well, I think that, um, I think that they're very comparable in all ways, except for desire to be shirtless. (laughs) Because I, I'm not sure Phil Collins has, I don't know if Phil Collins has ever been shirtless, even in the shower or swimming. I, I think he, I think he just probably wears a polo shirt or whatever all the time. But Phil Collins, I don't think I've ever seen him with a shirt on. Uh, he's probably, you know, outside shoveling snow in his jeans, no shirt. If you don't believe Toph about Phil Collins as a guitarist, go see Def Leppard live. You'll you'll walk away thoroughly impressed if not sort of blown away by just how good he is in every way his tone is fantastic as Tove just touched on he's a great performer he looks amazing I mean he really does I mean I don't hold quintessential rock star I mean looks great on stage looks cool when he plays and like, doesn't miss. Like, I don't think I've ever heard him miss. Yeah. So White Lightning is in my top five Def Leppard songs. We did this with Oasis. Oh, we're going to do top five? Show. So why don't we do that again? If you can drum up a top five for Def Leppard. Sure. Let's see if there's, I know with Oasis, we connected on a couple. Let's see what our Def Leppard lists look like. So, and this is in no order. Uh, have, have not spoiler alert, but have you ever needed someone so bad? Hysteria, turn to stone, which is on slant the slang record. Great, one of my song. favorite Def Leppard songs. Great song, love and affection, which is the closer to hysteria, and actually pulling something kind of old on through the night is absolutely one of my favorite all time Def Leppard songs. On through the night, off of high and dry, not exactly, off of through the exactly. Night. So, yeah. I so funny to me. Yeah. Yeah. Turn to stone is an, is an excellent choice. It didn't make my list, but it was right outside of it. 
What do you got? Well, we, we, we meet on one of on one track. So, and that, that one is on through the night. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Always, always been a favorite song of mine. Off yeah. High and dry. Yeah. And that's one of two choices off high and dry. The other one is another hit and run. Oh uh, yeah. Which is just a complete jam. Oh, you know what? I probably should have bring it on the heartbreak on mine. I, I I'm just going to, I'm just going to tie that with something. Cause it's hard to do five Def Leppard songs. It's just too it's good. Hard. It really is. It, is. it really is. <laughs> so I've got on through the night, another hit and run both off high and dry, okay. which again is my favorite Def Leppard album, white lightning off adrenalize gods nice. of war off hysteria and animal. Off oh hysteria. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. God, it's tough doing top five on those guys. You're right. Really tough. But that's a nice list. Animal's an awesome song. I think many thought this song was going to be an awesome song by fans, and it didn't really turn out that way, but some certainly think it's awesome. Stand up, kick love and emotion. So like segue, this is sort of the animal of Adrenalize when you're comparing to Hysteria. Or it could be the Hysteria. Could be the Hysteria. Yeah, that's a good call too. In fact, this was recorded, I think, during the Hysteria sessions, but they thought it sounded too much like Animal and Hysteria, so they, they shelved it. In hindsight, I wonder why this song wasn't a bigger hit. Like Hysteria, like Animal, it kind of captures some of that mid-tempo, beloved aspect of Def Leppard. It, it's got a really strong, catchy chorus. I always thought the song title was a little tough to digest. I thought maybe that had something to do with it. This song is so muttling. I mean, I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if he had a very, very, very heavy hand in writing this one. I do think when you look at the tempo, when you look at the structure, it could be argued that this one was a little bit formulaic uh, for them, which could have been part of its you know, lack of popularity as a single. I, I, I can see what you're saying there. It's, if Def Leppard became some of its self-fulfilling cliches after a few years, this song would probably fit into that area with all the things you just said kind of fitting into that. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. All right. A little more dumb rock personal property. Yeah. The initial riff is okay. It, it, it suffers from a, a fairly thoughtless chorus. This is the only song in this album that really feels like intentional filler. Like, Oh, we didn't have another song we could throw on here, which is interesting because there's several B sides. And if you look at the full scope of the adrenalized sessions, there were other things that came out of it, but clearly sequentially there was some thought to put in another sleazy rocker in there. And this certainly is one of those. It says something about Adrenalize. If personal property 
is the worst song on the album, which everyone probably could agree with. And I certainly would, but it's still not bad. It's, I kind of like the song, honestly, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not, you know, setting the world on fire from a intellectual standpoint, um, musically or lyrically, but I think it's, I think it's, it's sometimes you can learn the most and say the most and feel the most about a particular album by its weak spots. I'm, I'm glad you like it. Cause it, yeah, it's not, it's not like an awful song or anything. And it does represent probably the weak spot. And if so, yeah, it's a pretty strong weak spot. And it does say something about the album. Like I said, with the filler track thing, I, this album does not really have fluff on it. And from slang onward, every Def Leppard album since has had a fair amount of tracks where you're just feeling like they're crowbarring something onto the album to complete it. 10 tracks on an album was pretty short. That was a pretty small amount of songs. Oh, yeah. Now, Pearl Jam and you know some of these albums started to come into form where that became more of the norm. But for a band like Def Leppard, who sold the way Def Leppard, I mean, this album sold 3 million copies. 10 songs was pretty, was pretty trim. It's a testament to the efficiency of the album. They, they really, you you can tell they didn't want to have this be a 14 track album with a bunch of filler. And certainly if this one's considered filler, which it probably should be, it still shows that they were sitting on a lot of good material coming into this. At this point, you're kind of thinking, is this album about to, you know, fall off the cliff and it does the exact opposite. And it seems to conclude with three of the strongest songs on the record, starting with, have you ever needed someone so bad? Get your Kleenex out. Tom. You gonna be okay, dude? I'm just thinking about the multitude of junior high girls that dumped me. <laughs> it's a long I, list. It's a long list. What's what's a longer list? The amount of junior high girls that dumped you, or the amount of mixtapes that you put this song on oh, for oh girls in high school? It appeared on multiple. I'm not it, gonna lie. It did. I remember this, this was, this was a fixture on the TOEF mixtape during the nineties. That was definitely one of my moves. I'll I'll admit it. I think Def Leppard was always did a really good job of completing their songs. I can't think of one song in their catalog that made noise from any commercial perspective or fan favorite perspective that felt incomplete. You know, they always seem to complete thoughts by the end of the song and, have you ever needed someone so bad? It's a good example of that. It just seems like a very well thought out song that completes the thought. It could be considered maybe a little melodramatic listening to it in 2020, but in 1992, it, it sure fit in with all of the other great kind of more sensitive songs that a, that a hard rock band could put out. Melodramatic. How dare you? <laughs> I see a tear coming down your eye. Is that I'm just, I just got something in my eye. It's really, it's really dry in here. It's just dry. Okay. Some dust maybe. Um, and who wrote the song? 
Phil Collins. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a Phil Collins song. I mean, Elliot and Mutlang contributed to it, but it's absolutely a Phil Collins song. Yeah, Phil Collins wrote this and Miss You in a Heartbeat, which was either also a B-side or a soundtrack song, I'm not sure, which actually um, became a hit. Great contributions there from him on sort of these ballads and these slower tracks. This song has an awesome middle. I mean, that that's I think that makes it just as much with the um, guitar work uh, and then the vocal over the drums, just creating that space and the, you know, damned if I don't, damned if I do section that builds back up into the chorus, which is initially over just those pounds by Rick Allen. It, it's just a, it's a really nicely done song. Um, I don't remember them playing it live. It's probably pretty hard to pull off live. It's one of those songs that was very produced. Def Leppard always did a great job of pulling off their stuff live and it's hard. You got vocal harmonies, you've got guitar layers, you've got a lot of these pretty lush elements that you're trying to recreate at high tempos for the most part. And and they're singing. For anyone who thinks that, you know, this is all studio trickery, I remember that was kind of the rap on these guys for many years. Not true at all. Go see them live. They They are singing those harmonies. They all have great voices. Phil Collin has a terrific singing voice. Rick Savage has always been key to the background vocals. And so was Rick Allen, yeah. who does a lot of background vocals too. I mean, th- these guys are, are singing those very legitimately live. You still thinking about those junior high girlfriends or can we move on? <sighs> I know it's them. tough. I know it's tough. The ones that got away, the ones that got away. Another song title that's hard to say, but a little easier to say than the last one. I want to touch you. Not I want to touch you. I want to touch you. The letter U as well. The letter U. The letter U. This one brought to you by the letter U. So this is another one of the songs that was written by all five members, if you will. But it's one of Rick Allen's only songwriting credits on the album. I think Rick Allen came up with the beat and the, and the concept and the idea. Rick Savage actually layered the, the parts and the melodies on top of that. So nice to see, uh, especially a song that turned out to be fairly anthemic and a, and a, and a nice hit for the band. You know, good to see Rick Savage and Rick Allen collaborating in that way. Again, another one of those songs that I think had some hit potential, a chorus that was easy to sing along with a beat that was danceable, you know, Def Leppard. One of the things about the band that was really distinct from others was it appealed to female listeners just as much as dudes, you know, you go to a Def Leppard show and the, and the chicks are loving it. As they should. It's actually a really big, important point about this band. And it's good that you brought that up because for the most part through hair metal and through, you know, a lot of the kind of hard rock of the late 80s, early 90s, particularly as as grunge came in, very male heavy audiences. And Def Leppard was a, was notoriously big on not just having female fans and female listeners, but bringing a lot of female fans to their shows. 
And at that time, for a lot of these hard rock, you know, type bands, it's actually pretty unique how, you know, sort of the magnitude of the audience and how heavy female it really was. If only they could properly spell the word you and maybe not make up words like wanna, you know, well, it's weird because have you ever needed someone so bad as the track before? And that's spelled normally, but I want to touch you is, is with a, I don't know, maybe they were channeling Prince at the time. Yeah. That's a Prince move. Total Prince move. That's right. Nothing compares to numeral to U letter U, but they, it might be the only time in music history where they have two tracks back to back with the same word spelled differently. One would hope that's quite the, how about that stat? How about that nugget? Let's bring this thing to a close with a total jam. Tear it down. I love this song. One of my favorite things about this song is Def Leppard was asked to play the MTV Video Awards in 1989, which is between Hysteria and Adrenalize. And at that point, they were one of the biggest bands in the world. And so I'm sure MTV had no problem saying, hey, Def Leppard, come play. But they were probably too burnt out on the Hysteria material by then. And they're not really promoting Hysteria. And clearly, they're still you know, three years away from releasing Adrenalize. So what song does Def Leppard play on the MTV Video Music Awards? Tear it down. Mm. And it's a pretty awesome performance. I remember watching it nine years old. And I, my mind was blown because it is pre-internet. You know, you can't like just Google tear it down and figure out what it is. This was a brand new song that was not released. And I'm thinking, how do I get my hands on this song? And then three years later, when I finally got to the end of Adrenalize, it's like, oh, there it is. It's a pretty steaming closer. I mean, it, it's, it's got a lot of heat. That's very cool. I didn't know that about the uh, Video Music Awards, which back when they were worth watching. I actually would have swapped Tear It Down and I Want to Touch You. I think I Want to Touch You is a more ideal closer, uh, a bit more anthemic. But yeah, this is a great song. The thing I really like about it is that this riff, you know, could have easily been on high and dry, maybe even on through the night. I mean, it is a just an old school Def Leppard riff. This is a song that they could have played this with real drums and Pete Willis on the guitar and all that. And, and it would have, uh, it would have come off as a, as a really good rocker, just the same. And I don't think you can say that for most of the songs on this album, but this one feels very old school and feels like if you strip this down to kind of old school, raw Def Leppard, it would have worked just the same. I love that observation. I, I think it, it's probably the one song on Hysteria or Adrenalize and maybe also on Pyromania that really sounds like a high and dry song. I mean, it's very raw. It's very to the point. It's short, probably could go on a little longer for my taste. And it's got such a drive to it. You know, Rick Allen's drumming even sounds like his drumming pre-accident. I don't agree with you on the sequence. I think that 
it, it's a really dynamic closer. This album had to close with something kind of up tempo and and nasty and kind of raw. And so I like the way that I want to touch you sets this up, but you know, I think it closes this album how it should close with a good focused rock song, not a ton of the mutt laying elements or, you know, Mike Shipley elements. It really just sounds like Def Leppard being the band that they are. And that's a pretty cool thing. All right, T Def Leppard adrenalized. Does it matter? No. I mean, I, I don't think in the grand scheme of music history and what you would deem to be classic albums or must-haves in any collection, I, I wouldn't say that it matters. But, you know, again, this band's been around for 35 years, 40 years, whatever it is. And other than Hysteria, I don't, I don't know that they have an album that probably matters. So I, I don't think that Adrenalize is necessarily important or critical, but I don't think it needed to be. And I don't think that's what the band ever was really looking for, even with Hysteria. I certainly don't think that with this piece of work that the band did at the time they did it, dealing with what they were dealing with, you know, I think they were just looking for something that certainly paid musical homage and paid a little bit of lyrical homage, but mostly just showed them how to have fun again. And so I, I think it's in that way, it's a great album. I like it, but I, I wouldn't say that it matters in the grand scheme from a critical standpoint. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't, I don't think it matters in any sort of legacy way. For Def Leppard fans, I think it's an important item. It does bring a conclusion to the trademark sound, and it is the end of an era for the band. So for fans, like all the albums we look at, for fans, it's, it's going to matter in some way, shape, or form. But to casual rock fans or in the greater scheme, no, it's not an album that matters. It's not an album that created a legacy. If you're going to look for Def Leppard's legacy moment, you're looking at pyromania and you're looking at hysteria and, and there's no doubt about it. And while it mirrored some aspects of hysteria that made it appealing, Adrenalize did not set itself apart enough to create its own legacy. Toph, let's do the final cut. Is Adrenalize on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or is it in the for sale bin for me, it's collecting dust. It's it's, I think it's an album worth having, you know, if you're gonna, if you're going to have Def Leppard in your catalog and in your collection, you know, you're going to want hysteria and you're going to want adrenalize even pyromania. It's a great album, but I think, you know, that's sort of phase one still of Def Leppard before, you know, they incorporated the electronic drums before they really thickened and layered up their sound. So now it's not the type of album that, you know, I'm going to pop in a couple times a year. Um, I do think if you're introducing somebody to Def Leppard, Hysteria is probably the place to start. You might even go Pyromania second. But I, I do think the one-two punch of Hysteria and Adrenalize, I actually do think is is kind of the way to go here. So having it in the collection makes a lot of sense as far as getting a lot of spins 
you know, probably not as much. How about you? I'm going to say in the collection, because I think hysteria, as mentioned earlier, is such a, a pivotal point for not just Def Leppard, but for what hard rock music sounded like in the late 1980s that also having what came before it high and dry and pyromania and what came immediately after it tells the full story. I think it puts a cap on that whole era of the band. And for that reason, I think it should be in the collection, even for the casual rock fan. I don't think it's a dynamic enough album to be on the turntable, but the reality is it's a very, very strong record. These are 10 songs that capture a band probably at its peak commercially. Clearly the live shows proved that they were in a really good place, even with the loss of Steve Clark, even with Rick Allen, you know, just a few years out of his accident, some of the other turmoil that the band was going through. Really, really good songs. And so for that reason, I have it in the collection because I think it completes and tells the full Def Leppard story at the peak of its rock powers. All right. Well, let's wrap things up, T. What do you think? Can we, uh, can we do a little what's in your head? One more time. They are fighting <laughs> with their bums and their bums and their bums. At what point will the cranberries be what's in our head? You know, will that, oh. will that ever happen? You know, Interesting. it'd be very meta if that happens. Tof, what's in your head? Just today, one of my favorite bands that I think I've mentioned already on the podcast, Silver Sun Pickups, released a, it was kind of a mystery song. They didn't tell anybody what it was. In fact, they were taking pre-orders of a seven inch uh, without actually telling people what the song was. And they released it on the day of this recording. And it is a cover of Martika's Toy Soldiers. And it's a really, really cool version of it. So an 80s song that that I uh, have always loved and hearing Silver Sun pickups, particularly with the vocal blending that they have on, on many different tracks, they really pull this one off nicely. It's a really cool version. So check that out from Silver Sun pickups, a nice cover release from those guys. Uh, the second is from uh, Nubs's main man, Devin Townsend, a uh, song from his back catalog early on, uh, Life, which is just one of those songs I think you got to listen to once a week just to get a little pep in your step. It's a, it's a really, sometimes Devin Townsend stuff gets a little heady for me. But uh, man, when he gets it right and he's gotten it right plenty, particularly on a song like, like Life, uh, it's just outstanding. So the last one, I'm giving a little shout out to our, our buddy, uh, Joe Phillips um, from the Detroit area band, uh, Few and Far Between. Their song, uh, Coming to Get You, is one that uh, I think is one of their best. Uh, this was not on their their album three, which was kind of the, the album that most of their fans, particularly those around the Detroit area, um, got to know the best. This was the opening track off of an album that was released a few years later, but coming to get you by few and far between uh, shout out to Joe Fi, a great song there. Joe Fi, one of our favorites, of course, the local musicians. And that was off the we're all safe album and big shout out to Joe Fi. He just had a birthday. So, you know, happy belated birthday, Joe Fi. Oh, there we go. What's in your head, sir. What's in my head right now is uh, a song called morning by the band Tantric. 
Do you remember the unique story of Tantric? I don't. Tantric is the the guys from Days of the New, who's a band you and I both love. So Days of the New, Travis Meeks, they made that first album. He fired the whole band, and oh. they, the remaining members, went on to form Tantric. Ah, okay. Put out a couple really, really strong albums and, and a really amazing song, Morning, off of uh, the first Tantric album. Uh, I thought maybe you were going to say something about uh, Sting's love for tantric sex. <laughs> no, I know. But now I have to think about that. So thank you for that. Sorry. Yeah. It was Sting. It was he making love like a man. <laughs> nice callback. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, second song would be Nickelback's For the River. Hopefully we have more opportunities on this to talk about Nickelback because it's a band that you and I both like. Yep. Uh, and I don't understand for the life of me why they gets so heavily criticized by rock music fans, but for the river is a real jam from uh, their most recent album, feed the machine. Great then, album. Yeah, it is. It really is. And then gave collective souls shine a couple spins mm. of recent. I just wish that album was better mixed, better produced, better mastered. It's such a terrible production of some really strong songs. And well, I think Ed Roland recorded that in his garage, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, on like a four track. So yeah. And then they were going to re-record it and didn't, or you know, there's a whole story about that, but still a great song and, and clearly put that band on the map. So that is what's in my head. T, this has been fun. I feel like we're both adrenalized at this point. Are we both adrenalized? I tell you, man, it's it's fun to to talk about, especially a band that that was uh, that meant so much to you growing up as you were, you know, kind of developing your uh, rock and rollness and your appreciation for uh, for this kind of arena rock type genre. It's uh, it's a really fun fun album to revisit. I'm glad uh, I'm glad you picked it. It was fun to kind of go back and give it a listen, top to bottom, and and uh, and learn more about it. So yeah, much appreciate the pick. I guess just one more time. Do you want to get rocked? I think, I mean, I think we just did. I think we just did. I think we did. Thanks everybody so much for tuning in and we'll check in with you guys again real soon and make sure and subscribe and leave a comment on whatever respective platform you're listening to. And we really appreciate the continued support of two twins in an album. That's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.